I'm Monica. And I'm Emma. Welcome to Fanfare. Before we get into the show, can we make a brief detour into my closet? Always. Well, we've talked about this before, Emma, but fashion is like cooking. What? No. Well, yes, it all comes down to the ingredients. Oh. Yeah. When your essentials are solid, you don't have to own a zillion things. Nor should we aspire to, for obvious reasons. You don't need to have both sweet and hot paprika? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I don't think you do. And that's why I'm so excited that our sponsor for season three is Cezanne, a sustainable Parisian brand that nails the essentials. And this at a surprisingly accessible price point, given their commitments to quality and to eco-friendly business practices. Mm, they're a B Corp, aren't they? They are. Visit sezane.com to see what I mean. Joining us today is one of Canada's most respected and best-loved jazz vocalists and performing artists. A musician, mother, singer-songwriter, and philanthropist whose career has spanned many musical genres, from rock to pop to disco. And who, just a few days before our recording, was awarded the Governor General's Performing Arts Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement, Canada's highest artistic honour after having been awarded the French equivalent, the Chevalier dans l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres, just earlier this year. Her name is Molly Johnson. And Molly's imaginary guest is someone without whom, she says, she could not have done what she has done. Monica, you know how we always trade links to books and articles and things before an episode? Do you remember what I wrote when I sent you the NPR throughline episode called The United States versus Billie Holiday? Uh, I think you said this is going to make you very, very angry. Yeah. Although I knew and loved her music, I will admit that I was wholly unprepared for what I learned about Billie Holiday. Were you? No. Born Eleanor Harris in Philadelphia in 1915 to a very young mother, Billie Holiday, a name she later chose for herself, had what was by all accounts a brutal childhood or even a lack of childhood in Baltimore and then New York City, from which she rose, despite having no formal musical training, to become one of the greatest and most influential jazz and blues singers of all time. And beyond the raw and powerful emotional pull of her music, Billie was a forerunner of the civil rights movement, refusing to bow to injustice and persecution, even at the hands of the U.S. government. Though she struggled throughout her life with immense pain and addiction, she leaves us with a legacy of courage and perseverance that is massively inspiring. Billie Holiday sang truths that many did not want to hear, using her uniquely resonant voice to draw her audience's attention to the hate crimes that were taking place in broad daylight in a segregated America. Though she lived for only a short time, she leaves behind, as Monica says, a powerful and inspiring legacy. It is our great honor and privilege to bring you Molly Johnson and her imaginary dinner guest, Billie Holiday. So Molly Johnson, it is great to have you with us here. And um, I'm going to jump right in. I'm wondering how and when did you first discover Billie Holiday's work? What song or album was it and in what form and what feeling did it leave you with? Well, that would be probably around 1964, when I was about four or five years old. And my father and mother were big jazz fans and had spent a lot of time in Paris in the early 50s, hanging out in nightclubs and then in the U.S. hanging out in nightclubs. They're 
neither of them were musicians, just a mixed race couple who found safety <laughs> within the jazz and theater communities, my parents. Um, so there was a lot of music floating through the air as I was growing up as a kid in Toronto. Um, they also hosted a lot of musicians in the 50s and early 60s in Toronto at our house because tra traveling musicians, big bands would come to Toronto and there were only a few hotels at that time that booked black musicians into their hotels. So um, my parents often housed musicians <laughs> who I just considered annoying because they were frankly sleeping on our couches and eating our food. And I didn't really know who they were because I was just a kid. But you know, there were members of Ella Fitzgerald's band. There were many interesting musicians floating through the house. But a lot of the conversation around Billie Holiday was because of her work in civil rights. So this this house filled with musicians, um, I just want to, can you tell us where where it is and kind of describe it for us a little bit? It was in High Park, a beautiful, big park in downtown Toronto, one of the greenest cities in Canada, our beloved Toronto. Our house, our backyard kind of gently sloped right into the park and right into Grenadier Pond, this beautiful pond where my brothers would build rafts out of garbage and stick their little sister <laughs> on it and float me out into the middle of that lake. And we'd skate on yeah. it in the winter, we'd splash around on it during the summer. And it was a big old rambly kind of a house. Uh, my parents tend to punch above their weight in terms of real estate because they wanted us in great schools. So uh, yeah, it was a beautiful rambling old house uh, in downtown Toronto. <laughs> wow. And when you were four or five years old and Billie Holiday was playing, would that have been on a record or a tape or a radio? Total record time. Yeah. The first record my father actually gave me was a Miles Davis record, uh, Birth of the Cool, uh, which was recorded the year of my birth, 1959. So that's kind of a, a little aside there in terms of jazz. But yeah, it was it was a, a turntable, I think. Um, we were also at that time children of the Mervish family of theaters. So the Mervishes, uh, Ed Mervish ran a, an incredible theater called the Royal Alex in downtown Toronto. And he tended to put on pretty provocative plays for that time. And one of them was Porgy and Bass and many of those songs were sort of written around the Billie Holiday time by George Gershwin. And your your first major performance, if I'm not mistaken, was in grade school with your brother in Porgy and Bess. Yeah, yeah. And my sister and my cousin who couldn't sing, but he sure looked cute. So they wow. put him in there too. <laughs> and Billie Holiday later sang several of those songs, right? Summertime was one of those. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. And did your parents actually meet Billie Holiday? I don't know if they ever met, met her, but they were definitely in rooms with her. I'm, I know that to be true. I don't know if, you know, they were kind of laid back people. They didn't, they were, weren't really into the fandom of it all. They were more into the, I don't know, the culture of it. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And they were deeply involved in the civil rights movement themselves. And, you know, they really would later on describe to me that Billie Holiday was actually the forerunner in the civil rights movement. There was no Dr. King. There was no Malcolm X. There was no Sidney Poitier. I mean, Billie was sort of out there being a badass, kind of on her own in the in the those early, early days. Absolutely. And one of the things that's really struck us researching for this episode was um, how, I mean, obviously there's a lot of information out there about Billie Holiday. We can start with the fact that she published an autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, in 1956, three years before her death at the age of 44, um, and that that was the basis for the 1972 film of the same name starring Diana Ross. And then, of course, several biographers have also written about her. But still, there are conflicting accounts, um, certainly of her childhood and and difficult early years, but also of the later assault on her rights by the U.S. government. Why do you think it is that there's still so much conflicting information about this enormous figure? And, um, And can you tell us a little bit about her formative years as you understand them? The way I understand her formative years was that she didn't really have a childhood. She was, uh, my understanding is her mom was a prostitute and that she pretty quickly tried to uh, employ Billy herself in that world. Um, So pretty rough, pretty rough upbringing. I don't, pretty sure she didn't actually know who her father was. I mean, that, that could be, I mean, it's pretty blurry because nobody was really documenting her properly at that time. I think the best documentary on Billie Holiday was actually done by the BBC. And the BBC, because of their, you know, couple of steps away from the Americans, I think have a much clearer, had a much clearer version of Billie's life. So I think if anyone's really interested in wanting to dig deeper. It's actually the documentary done by the BBC. She was very uh, solitary in a way in her her life. You know, she, she did kind of keep to herself a little bit. Um, and I think the war on drugs, let's start right there. The war on drugs, that whole stupid saying, that whole political mandate really did start with Billy. And you know, it's well documented that uh, drugs were planted in her room, that that was a way to take her her license away. Back in those days, you had to have a club license to play in nightclubs. And if you didn't have that license, um, you, you technically couldn't play in clubs. And they were the government was really, really quite clear on taking away her license and, and taking away her voice. Let's back up and talk about that but also specifically uh, the monumental song that is Strange Fruit and Billy's Billy's refusal to stop singing it, even when facing extreme personal danger at the hands of Federal Narcotics Bureau Commissioner Harry Anslinger cronies. and his yeah, it's cronies. cronies in the U.S. government. So to explain to listeners who may not know... Um, Billie Holiday did suffer from drug and alcohol addiction. And this is sort of just after Prohibition, but the guy who had been in charge of Prohibition for the government 
well, of, of keeping people in line, was then about to be out of a job, and he decided to turn it into a war on drugs. I mean, I'm kind of summing it up here and generalizing, but that seems like it... And was a deeply racist and disturbing man. Deeply. Well, deeply. I mean, state, Strange Fruit, such a provocative song. She did it very specifically as well. She insisted on a particular kind of lighting. Uh, there were no solos. It was top to bottom, straight through, lights out. So there was that kind of performance of it that was kind of dramatic and made a compelling song even more compelling. She actually used it. She weaponized that song in such an awesome way in my mind in that if there were riots in a town or city that she was about to play in, the club owner would say, please don't do Strange Fruit tonight. It's just going to incite and inflame. And of course she did do it. I mean, when asked not to, that was kind of her ticket to do it. And that was kind of the bravery and courage of that woman. You know, she missed out on so many things because, well, for instance, the all-white, all-male big band who refused to travel in a, it, none of them would come in the black elevator with her, the blacks only elevator. So she didn't get on that elevator. She didn't do that gig. So she didn't get to go to Europe with them. She was really um, strong in her conviction and Strange Fruit was definitely, though it took that writer, that white English school teaching writer many years to get her to record it. Like he had to really track her down and keep sticking that song in front of her face until she recorded it. This is Abel, Abel Mirapol, um, whose pseudonym was Lewis Allen, right? Yeah, it was initially a poem and was set to music specifically for her. And protest songs weren't really a tool used in that. She was the first. There was no Sidney Poitier. There was no, 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 no. There was none of that. There was no Marvin Gaye, one of the great protest writers of all time, in my view. There was none of that. It was Billy really... Um, on her own. I mean, as a vocalist, uh, you're not a trumpet player. You're not a horn player. You're a vocalist. It's a vocal. It's talking. It's speaking. It's a different thing. It's way more in your face. And you're not hiding behind some piece of tin. It's actually you. <laughs> so it's, it's, she was remarkably courageous. She was. I also love the detail I came across, which was that she wouldn't begin singing it until everybody in the room was silent. Exactly. Exactly. I rarely do it. I rarely sing Strange Fruit. Like, it is not in my repertoire. It's not something you pull out, like, you know, whatever. And in fact, when I sing Summertime, I tell the story that it's not about the weather, people. This is not about the weather. Daddy's rich. 
is a line in that song. Daddy's a plantation owner and your mama's good looking means she was a house slave, which meant she was being raped on a regular basis. This is not cotton's high. You got, you're out there picking it. You're not wearing it. You're picking it like, you know, that summertime is deeply potent. And I tend to explain it before I sing it. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, I'm a bit of a, a bit of a downer when you come to a Molly Johnson show, be prepared to weep. <laughs> then you'll spread your wings and you'll take the sky. Nothing can harm you With daddy and mammy Standing by Good. I mean, that people need that context. I think songs can so easily just become a part of our own narratives and we fail to listen to what, what they're really saying. When my parents were married in the United States of America, my father could have been lynched for marrying my mother. And my mother's entire family cut her off when she married a black, like severely obituary in the International Times cut her off. They wrote an obituary? Yeah, it was my parents. This is not 150 years ago. These are my freaking parents. That's why they came to Canada. That's why. I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. Like I was born in 1959. The Vietnam War was still going on when I was born in Canada. And my parents were regularly traveling back and forth to the U.S. to do what they could in the civil rights movement. Like, this is kind of my living history. It's not, you know, sort of dead history. It's, well, my parents have since passed away, but, you know, this is this is a thing. So I'm very specific about Strange Fruit and the lynching of it and the whole situation because, yeah, you know, my children are very privileged, but are the great-great-grandchildren of a slave. And when she was singing that song, it was happening constantly in the South and was completely just, you know, blind eyes were turned. It was considered yeah. acceptable. In a way, yes. In a way. Absolutely. By a swath of society that certainly didn't didn't try to stop it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And nobody else was singing about this in the way that she was. No, 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 no. Well, you were a tisket a-tasking it over there in Ella Fitzgerald's world. We were, you know, we were not. No, Billy was alone in that, for sure. Again, courageous, very brave. And she pissed a lot of people off, black and white, with her um, badass ways, quite frankly. <laughs> I came across another piece of information that I couldn't get past, which is that this horrible guy and slinger was eventually given like a very high honor by John F. Kennedy, which which first of all is incredibly I mean, it's ironic on so many levels. I mean, first of all, history likes to um, cast the Kennedys as having been part of the civil rights movement themselves, I, I guess, specifically Bobby. But also JFK himself um, is meant to have been completely hyped up on all sorts of <laughs> drugs to get through. He was his, a drug addict for sure. He was a drug addict. Shoes yeah. and this and that. So what, what gives? You know, politics is a messy business. 
It always has been. My mother, when she was a privileged New York socialite and actually went to a school where the girls were dating the Kennedys, actually in one of her journals, she calls them dumb and dumpy. Those two guys, okay? <laughs> she was beyond badass herself. So, you know, change happened. Change is still happening. We're still working through this. Though I often find myself reminding young black people today that they are really standing on the shoulders of a massive movement that involved not just black people as Dr. King constantly preached, all hands on deck. Everybody needs to make this change, to make change. And if you look at those old posters and things of Dr. King marching, you will see Jews, you will see Chinese people, you'll see a Catholic nun, you see white people, you see First Nations people, you see people walking with Dr. King of all race. Um, and that was what he was preaching, was we all need to come together on this. And and he is, of course, deeply right about that. And, and you know, the fight is still there, but no, no buts about that. The fight is still there. We've made incredible change, incredible progress. We had a black man in the presidency. Come on, come on, people. He wasn't allowed to do much. Bit of a placeholder, very smart guy, but still he was there, right? So great gains have been made. Billy's work did not go on, unjumped on and unstood on. And I, I always feel that I'm on standing on her shoulders. I take that very, I take her life very personally to my life in that I uh, was raised in great privilege comparatively. So I never allowed myself to become a drug addict, never allowed myself to become an alcoholic. Just too much privilege going on here, too much work went into building me. <laughs> I needed to be that, and I still live in that. Well, that, that leads well to my question um, about your album, Because of Billy. Um, your 2014 album, the proceeds of which were donated to children's charities um, in respect of her for her very difficult childhood. Can you describe the frame of mind that you were in when you came up with the idea for that album and, and what it was like working on it? Annoyed. I was annoyed. Quite frankly, people bugged me to do a Billy record for ages. And a lot of it was based on kind of just kind of ignorant, you know, oh, you, you're brown skin, you look like her, you sound like her, you should make, you know, that's the because part of my record. I'm because of Billy. I am not Billy. I'm because of her. The album artwork was very specific and I didn't want some slumped over picture of me in a blue dress depressed on hanging over an old microphone. Like that's not happening. I needed to be strong and happy and, and smart. And I, you know, Chris Nichols, the photographer has been shooting me since we were kids. I said to Chris, we got him. Can, can you make me look smart and forward thinking and strong? And that's that album jacket. I'm because of her. I am because of the work that the civil rights movement did. Right. And I needed to make that point deeply, whether anybody got that or not. I'll never really know the fact that I chose a children's charity, Boys and Girls Club. Many reasons. The biggest one, of course, being that 
uh, Billy did not have a childhood, to your point. She really didn't. I wanted to find a really great children's charity that was really hands-on. And Boys and Girls Clubs of Canada and America, you know, they're just an after-school program that happens everywhere. And they just gather up children after school and keep them safe until their parents get home from work. I mean, it's really quite fantastic. And there's homework and there's sports and there's arts and there's whatever that local Boys and Girls Club can gather together to offer those children. And I just thought that was, I looked a long time. I spent a long time on it. I spent a long time tracking down the royalties who owned the publishing on, on, the, on those very few songs that Billy managed to write herself. Um, that took a minute. I'm telling you right now. And then talking them into giving us the royalties for that year. And of course, that was a birthday year for Billie Holiday that month. And I was able to talk a couple of American bigger name singers into also recording Billie that year. That year, we had that lane of royalty. So we did some business. The way you changed my life. No, no. came across an interesting uh, fact, which is that Frank Sinatra attributed much of his t- success um, to this one amazing formative moment early in his career. Well, early in both their careers, they were born the same year, actually, when Billy, they crossed paths and became friends. And Billy taught him a new way of blending his jazz notes, which she then never took credit for. But he always maintained it. And even uh, visiting her on her bed, uh, deathbed, you know, in the end when she was in hospital and was having a terrible time with the feds, he paid his respects and he really attributed a lot of his success to her. I, I was wondering, has Billy has her style, you know, what is it about her style for music aficionados that has, you know, affected your own style? What do you take from her? Not so much vocally and not so much her style, but her reason for doing what she did. Uh, I take that. I take, again, the civil rights, the strength, the courage. Um, I actually, after, you know, not living with my parents and hearing it as a little kid, and it wasn't always Billy, it was a million other things. It was Earth, Wind and Fire. It was, you know, there was, there was a lot of music in the house. Um, but because people expected me to sound and look and act like Billy, I kind of went the other way. Um, when I first started singing jazz in the back room of the Cameron, it was to learn how to write a melody. I was in a rock band writing songs for a rock band and I'm a national ballet school student. I don't read music. I don't play an instrument at that time for sure. And so I needed to understand melody. So in the back room of the Cameron, I started singing Gershwin and Ellington and Billy Strayhorn sitting down with a fake book. Yes, the Billy stuff resonated a lot with people, but I didn't specifically set out to sing Billy, that's for sure. And in fact, I was annoyed by people 
saying, well, you look like her. You might, you know, you sound like her. You, you, you know, like it bugged me. And I fought against that. I fought deeply against that right up until the Billy record where I went, okay, uncle, basically I'll record that. I recorded that record in like under four days. Almost every take on that record is a first take. And, and almost every song, a lot of them, my beloved bass player, I would come into the studio and he'd sit and teach it to me. I'd record it. I never, I never sang it again, right? That's not Billy record. It was, it was really very specific. But I never set out, in fact, fought against the notion. How dare you say I'm like Billie Holiday? That was insulting to her and, and, and by way insulting to me that I hadn't fought that through. I'm nothing like Billie Holiday. I know exactly who my father was, 100%. I know exactly who my mother was, 100%. I went to the National Ballet School in Canada for crying out loud. I lived at Avenue Road in St. Clair, uh, High Park. Like I was, I, I was the result of this incredible movement. That's how I look at myself. I'm the result of something and I have the responsibility to be that person. I feel like I'm not always answering your questions. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, you're you're you are giving us wonderful answers. For for con for context, I grew up at Avenue Road in St. Did you Claire go to Brown too, School? So. We we both did. I sure did, and, and so I'm did currently, Emma. I went to Brown School too. What? And my brother? No way! Right? And my brothers and sisters went to Deer Park. Oh my goodness! Wow. Were you in French immersion? There was no French immersion at Brown School. I went to the Brown School that was designed by the same guy who designed Upper Canada College. And if you can ever go into your research and look at what Brown School used to look like, it was a magnificent building. I am not Wait, kidding you. What? Now it looks like Why a prison. Why did they turn it into it, that brown Kleenex box? No, it looks like a prison. Oh my gosh. It looks like a yeah. prison. And by the way, in 1960s, in the 60s, my family were the only brown kids in that entire school. There wasn't even a Chinese kid in that school. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's the way it was. And I literally have watched my beloved Toronto change color right before my very eyes in my lifetime. It's a remarkable life to see that, right? But girls, being brown school girls, yay. Go and look at, try and find. I'm Googling it right now. It's gorgeous. What? Why would they tear that down? Okay, and I'll tell you why. Number one, the windows were huge. We got gypped. So heating, you know, these idiots. And every floor had a well, a hole cut into it with this gorgeous wrought iron around it. Can you imagine four floors of a big hole? Beautifully done. Because we stood around it at school assemblies and the teachers and the and the principal were on the bottom looking up at us. We did choir stuff around those. They weren't holes, they were called a well. And obviously a fire would go right up there. Slightly hazardous, but quite fun. So huge fire hazard. But you know what? Why not just put a floor in? Why take the whole gorgeous building down? That was an era when we were just taking shit down. 
We're, you wouldn't believe the buildings we lost at that time. There's a good story for you. It was a great school, despite its um, the unfortunate architecture by the time we got there. we uh, No, we had a great, <laughs> had a great experience. Great From the inside, it was good. From the inside, right. it was great. We had a great experience. Great. And um, I'm right now a five-minute walk from Grenadier Pond and oh my your, your raft. Oh, great. I, I learned to skate on that. You know, we used to, in our bathing suits with a towel and a sandwich, cross the lakeshore to go to the beach in our flip-flops. Think about that. Wow. That's, uh, no, no, we were just skittering back and forth. Oh my gosh. The history of Toronto is something I'm really fascinated by. And Park we were on that beach with no lifeguards. Right. You know, my goofball brother, Clark, who I'm sure you've heard of now, um, he in charge. Are you kidding me, mom? Really? Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is this. I like this because... We have to figure out where we're having this dinner, how we're going to make Billy feel safe. And now I'm wondering, should we have it at your parents' house? Would that be okay? Yeah, we can have it there. I don't, I can't remember the address though. Do you need stuff like that? Like, what do you need? No, no. To summon her. We can do a recce. That's very, very close we'll to find here. it. Okay. So Ellis Avenue will be the location for this dinner party. Emma, true or false, one of the best things about parties, including imaginary ones, is playing dress up. True, true. True or false, our current clothing habits are one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Miserably true also. Which brings me back to our season three sponsor, Cezanne. Not only are their clothes so timelessly chic that you'll want to wear them over and over for decades, possibly centuries to come, but they are made well, both from a quality and from an environmental standpoint. Cezanne is a certified B Corp that sources organic textiles, ships in boxes that are either 100% recycled or sourced from sustainably managed forests, powers all of its stores with renewable energy, and has managed to reduce the carbon footprint of one garment by 17.2% over the last year. Plus, the clothes are dreamy for a Tuesday morning or for dinner with your dream guest. Bon appétit! I want to talk about menu. <laughs> Molly, I want to know if you have suggestions. I sure do. Maybe perhaps... Okay, yeah, go for it. Well, you know, my parents being American, my father being a black American, girls, you would love, you would have loved my mother. She actually never bothered to learn to cook. Let's just start right there with her. She was an activist. She was a lawyer for Amnesty. She represented people like Fidel Castro. She was such a freaking badass. So the menu would be collard greens with smoked forecock. You gotta have those smoked pig's feet in there in that collard green. You gotta have like this is all about the pork. Like you have to remember, soul food is essentially everything that was thrown out by the plantation that didn't go to the pigs. Before it went to the pigs, it went to the employees, the slaves, right? So soul food was collard greens are basically like kale. Like they're the hardiest, unkillable vegetable right so collard greens with pig's feet salted pork hocks are basically in everything so you gotta have your collard greens you gotta have your cornbread and of course cornbread is made with bacon fat right so you get the bacon fat hot in a cast iron frying pan you put your batter it right into that 
fat and stick it in the oven. That's cornbread for real. That's Southern South Carolina black, black soul food, right? So cornbread, collard greens. Well, you know, there's going to be chicken. You know, people, there's going to be some fried chicken. This has to happen. It's just the way it this goes. has to happen. It just has to be there. No such thing. There might also need to be Chinese duck. <laughs> what do you think? That famous quote from her autobiography. Singing songs like The Man I Love or Porgy is no more work than sitting down and eating Chinese roast duck. And I love roast duck. <laughs> she, loved, she loved Chinese food. Well, a lot of musicians love Chinese food, quite frankly, because it was the only restaurant still open after the show. Oh. You walk off that stage, it's one o'clock in the morning. Who's open? Pretty much anywhere in the world. There's going to be some kind of crazy Chinese food restaurant that's open. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. That's that. My particular trio of 30 years, we decided years ago to stop eating after a show because it's you just get fat. It's super unhealthy. You're eating at 1, 1.30 in the morning. Then you're back to your hotel to sleep, to get up for a lobby call at 8 in the morning. It's not good. So because, you know, we're large and in charge now, we have our main meal at 3.34 o'clock in the afternoon after sound check, but with plenty of time before the show. Then after the show, yeah, man, after the show, we go back to the hotel, we go back to our rooms, we change, and then we go for a walk. And it's now 1.30 in the morning, and we walk around the streets of Paris, or we walk around the streets of Ottawa. I mean, we walk around these deserted streets, and... You know, we're just such old friends. The jokes are deep. You know, we just walk and talk and there's, you know, we never make mistakes on stage. It's jazz, we're crying out loud. There's no mistakes. It's just different today or it's always different. You know, it's all in the, it's all in the bounce back. As my dad used to say, it's all in the bounce back. So, you know, we've really, um, the Chinese food, that's, that's where that comes from. I guarantee it. So you walk off the adrenaline from performing. Do you still feel like that charge after? We do. We do. And we, you know, we might have snacks and, you know, I love a little chocolate. I'm not going to lie to you. A bit of a chocolate girl. And my bass player, Michael's turned us all on to that one shot of ice cold vodka neat. Boom. And off we go. <laughs> well, that does lead me to the question, are we going to serve alcohol at this dinner? I think we don't want to be holier than that. No, we I don't. think there should be al alcohol. On yeah. It. And I guess it depends what stage is at. I've read that her favorite cocktail was called the Stinger, and it was two ounces of cognac with one ounce of creme de menthe. That sounds like an after gig drink. And apparently she liked it so much that her manager started calling venues ahead of time to tell them to get rid of those two ingredients. Which is why I asked whether we should or shouldn't. But I agree. This is a celebratory affair. I think champagne wouldn't go amiss. I do not think it would not. I think it would be good. Morals for spring. Groundbreaking. And now I know that the context is like low key. We're going to be in a very warm, uh, loving environment at your parents' house. But we need to figure out what we're going to wear. And the thing is... Billy sets the bar very high where fashion is concerned. Yes, yeah, she loved her fashion. 
She did. She As do I. Nice. I love my haute couture. Yes. yes. I I've seen that. some I don't photos. own a lot of it. I tend to borrow it and give it back. Thank you, Nicholas <laughs> Malenfi. My, my dress fairy. He is my dress fairy. That's the way to do it. Read my album notes. Are you, do you think you're going to wear one of Nicholas's dress to this affair? Oh, of course I would. Yeah, one of his dresses. Um, I was going to wear a, her signature gardenias maybe in my hair um, yeah. as, a, as a sign of respect. Maybe we all could. That's a good idea. But, you know, she was really very, very glamorous. I, I actually came across... You know, it was all gloves and the gardenias and the gowns and silk. Yeah, there's an interesting piece in The Guardian by Lauren Crochane about how Billie Holiday made glamour revolutionary, Crochane argues, suggesting that her style in and, in and of itself could be seen as a radical act. Like, how dare that black woman spend all that money on clothes? How dare that black woman wear the dress that I bought Eaton's last week. How dare she have that dress that's, you know, how dare she? Yeah, yeah. and she Quite was so poised. Her head held high. She had these fabulous ponytails that she carried off so well. Like yeah, really yeah, yeah. every inch the star. So I feel as a sort of tribute to her, we all want to look quite put together. I agree, Monica. I 100% agree with that. I think we should all wear gardenias and we should all wear yeah, vintage couture, uh, the designer of our choice. Yeah. And gloves. And gloves. Gotta have gloves. Reiki's my mother wore gloves. Not not by the time she moved to Canada, that's for sure. But she definitely was of that era where woman, women wore gloves. Did they take them off? Some days I want to bring that glove thing back just for all the germs that are out there. <laughs> you know what? There were actually on the last runways in Paris there were gloves and I thought I believe it what a wonderfully elegant thing to do and actually not entirely impractical I mean they're not technically for warmth but I wear them on stage sometimes mostly when I haven't had the inclination or the time or frankly the desire to sit and get a manicure I am so impatient I rarely get out of there without smudging a nail like I'm just so I know so and gloves can do that you know? Oh, sky's the limit for us girls now. We can do whatever we want. It's so awesome. And I'll get a bunch of gardenias on hand so that we can all just put them in the sides of our updos, you know, right before she arrives. Yeah. Well, and don't forget, that was the age when Black women were burning the shit out of their hair, right? With all kinds of chemicals and heating things and I mean, right up until even now, uh, when black women will burn the crap out. I mean, it's way less now. Like, oh my God, are you guys watching Bridgerton, the second season? I haven't watched the second season now. Oh my God, for the hair alone. Girls, just, I mean, what I love about it is the, I mean, Shonda Rhimes, good Lord. God, I love that woman. I mean, it's just eye candy, right? Like, it's just so pretty. That's what I loved about Bridgerton. I didn't really give a shit what was going on. Everything just looks so pretty. And I love pretty. What happened to pretty? Why can't we have more? It's like being on the inside of a Ladurée macaroon box. 
oh my god i love la durée oh my god <laughs> oh maybe we should serve some la durée maybe because i was yes, thinking as a late night snack vanilla ice cream warm chocolate chip cookies i read that she liked a fried pb and j sandwich which i think is brilliant as a late night snack with ice cream and macaroons like a grilled cheese sandwich but peanut butter and jam yes Super duper delicious. Before our late night walk around the pond. It's still the same old story. A fight for love and glory. A case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers. As time goes by. Well, I guess now um, she's going to be arriving pretty soon, but we were wondering, Molly, once she gets here, what what burning questions do you have for her? Or maybe there's something that you've always wanted to say to her. What would that be? Well, I think what I've always wanted to say to her is thank you. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your strength. Thank you for leading us to the promised land. (laughs) Thank you, Billy. Thank you. That's what I would say to her. I don't have any questions necessarily, though I would like to know what she thought of Diana Ross playing her in a movie because I thought it was very bad casting, extremely bad casting. Holy smokes, that's a horrible movie in my mind. I wouldn't mind ask, wondering what she might have thought of that movie, um, because I really didn't like it. <laughs> um, maybe that, but mostly, I would I would want to thank her for all of the above. Well, we want to thank you. Yes, we do. Thank you, Molly. Oh, that was so much fun, girls. Well, that's all for today. Thank you so much, Molly, for joining us. And if you have comments, questions, anything you'd like to tell us, really, please don't hesitate to email us at fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. And if you're a fan of Fanfare, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast because that'll help other people discover it. Thank you to our producers, Matt Bentley-Viney and Joel Grove. See you next time. Bye for now.